Welcome in to the OMR Podcast International. I'm Scott Peterson, host of the pod and digital marketing editor at OMR, your home of the OMR Festival, which at long last is coming back this May 17th and 18th in Hamburg, Germany. Going to be a good one too. We got Quentin Tarantino coming, just to drop one spicy name for you. Be sure to check out omr.com for more details. Tarantino obviously has made his name on the big screen. Today's guest in the OMR podcast, Christian Horner, became a star on the small screen when the Netflix documentary on Formula One, Drive to Survive, blew up. If you haven't seen the show, Horner is what's called the team principal for Team Red Bull, basically the team boss who supervises daily operations. In this episode, Horner is joined by OMR head honcho, Philip Westermeyer. They talk about his job in Formula One, the impact Drive to Survive has had on the circuit, how he now gets to deal with regular selfie requests as a result, what Formula One can learn from other professional sports, how to recognize talent, and where the most coveted advertising spots are in Formula One. All of that and more in the OMR podcast, coming up right now. Welcome to the OMR podcast. Last year, we spoke a lot about soccer. This year, we'll be speaking a lot about Formula One. It starts with one of the biggest names in Formula One. He's um, the mastermind behind Formula One um, Red Bull Racing. He's Christian Horner. He doesn't speak German. His name sounds German, but he is British. Hi, Christian. Hi. Um, uh, explain to us a little bit about your um, journey into Formula One. I mean, everybody knows your name and your, your household name almost uh, in Germany, um, but I don't think everybody knows like the way how you got there. Yeah, well, as you said, I have a, a, a German-sounding name, but uh, unfortunately, um, you know, I've lived in the UK all my life. I'm not aware of any German heritage, but uh, I, I started my career as a driver. You know, I started racing in in karts when I was uh, 11 years of age. Um, then I progressed into into car racing in racing, you know, single-seater race cars. So full of, through the various formulas, Formula Renault, Formula 3, Formula 2. Um, and uh, I created my own team in Formula 2. Um, and uh, I raced for it for, for two seasons just to get it established. And then, um, uh, you know, really ran the team as I would have liked to have driven for, for a team. And, um, uh, you know, I had a lot of success with that. Uh, I won the championship for three years in a row, uh, racing against uh, Dr. Helmut Marco's team. Ah, <laughs> ah, ah, okay, uh, okay. Which was my first, uh, well, even before that was my first introduction, you know, to him. I bought a trailer from him back in 1996 when I first created this team. And... Um, and yeah, and then I ran a Red Bull Junior driver in 2004, uh, with Antonio Liuzzi, uh, alongside Dutchman Robert Dornbos, and um, again, dominated that championship. Um, so I was looking at the next step, you know, to go into, into Formula One. Um, Bernie Eccleston was pushing me very hard uh, to buy what was at the time the Jordan team. Um, and I was had some investors that were interested in getting involved in that. Uh, and then Red Bull uh, became the primary option for uh, the Jaguar team. Um, and once they'd acquired it at the end of, in November 2004, they came to me and said, well, look, why don't you come into this project with us? 
and because uh, they wanted to change the management and put their own mark on it. And so uh, the deal with uh, Jordan was becoming ever more complicated. So I decided that, you know, I'd go for, I'd take up this position with, you know, with Red Bull. I was only 31 years of age. Um, so it was, uh, it was an exciting project to be and get involved in, you know, right from, from the, from the very beginning. But you never became an investor into the team, right? I mean, like the, your other option would have been to like look for money yourself and become an entrepreneur yourself. Like the way it's set up now, my understanding is you're basically in the end, is, is that an employee position within Red Bull or how would you consider that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I'm, you know, I'm the CEO and team principal of, uh, the Red Bull Formula One activities. But the shareholders, you know, 100% shareholders are, are, are Red Bull GmbH. So, uh, you know, I report to Mr. Matterschitz and, uh, you know, obviously the, the board in, uh, in, in Red Bull. But do you sometimes regret that you don't became an investor yourself? I mean, there was such a value development around those teams lately. Yeah, but Formula One's a very expensive game also. And I think that, uh, you know, the value is really coming into the franchises now. Um, and, uh, you know, it would have been just too expensive uh, in the previous years to get involved in, you know, in the sport. The uh, the demand for, for sponsorship and revenue is so high. It would have been very, very difficult to uh, have made, for example, the Jordan Project, you know, successful. At the time, what kind of cost were you looking at for a team at the at that stage, uh, like a couple of years ago, and and versus today? What, what's like just be able to understand it economically a little bit better? What what time of value are we looking at? I think at the time you're talking about a valuation of the Jordan team. Uh, he, he, the, you know, Eddie was trying to value it around 15, 16 million pounds. So, uh, and if you think you know today's teams, the top team is is in excess of a billion. Uh, wow! So that would be like the Red Bull team now, or the Mercedes team is like over a billion. You've got to got to assume that with where Formula One is, with the revenues that come into the sport, that uh, you know in in excess of that, you know, for for a top team. Wow! Wow! And um, maybe one last question to to your to your journey to your past. Um, Like your talent as a driver, was that, would that been would that been enough to drive in Formula One yourself? Like like open and self critical, were you just like the wrong circumstances, or would you say like you are a better manager than a driver? I was okay as a driver, but there were lots of drivers that were okay. You know, I raced against you know, the, my my era was Juan Pablo Montoya and Nick Heidfeld, and yeah. you know guys. Guys like that, but uh, you know, I the higher you get, the harder it becomes. And you know, I was okay, but I was only ever average. I was not a uh, good enough to be a uh, a good Formula One driver. I tested in Formula One for the Lotus team uh -huh. uh, back in the early nineties in nineteen ninety three, but uh, it gave me a, gave me a fantastic insight. It gave me you know a great experience and a, a feeling and understanding. Okay, but I mean, it would have been enough for like the middle or the, the back of the field or the pack, but not for like be a, be a championship oh, driver. Absolutely, even the middle, uh, even the middle of the pack, the, the standard in Formula One is so high. Um, the, you know, I, I, I loved the time that I had driving. I drove against some great, uh, you know, great drivers. Um, you know, there was some wonderful talent at the time. Drivers like Tom Christensen was racing and... Um, Uh, who else? Uh, you know, I was racing in cards against Yano Trulli and yeah. 
and uh, Gianfrancarlo Fisichella yeah. and these guys. And actually, um, yeah, I raced against Max Verstappen's mum, uh, Sophie Klumpen, in uh, in the very late eighties, nineteen eighty nine. I did the, the <laughs> okay. Junior World Championships in karting and uh, was racing against, you know, Max's mother. <laughs> okay, I didn't know that. Okay, um, I mean, I'm asking a little bit because it sometimes feels like there is a path to Formula One as a driver um, that that is, that is basically money. I mean, you there's those those, those paid drivers where you know there's always these stories of people that sort of like buy a seat and it feels like you know that is not a talent question then no, look, i think formula one uh, or motorsport is just gener generally very expensive from karting all the way through and you know i had to work very hard to raise sponsorship um to fund you know my my driving career so again it was another education for me that you know i had to go and 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 sell myself i had to uh sit in front of you know, company management and, and convince them to, to invest in me, to invest in, in, in motor racing. So that was, again, it was a great experience. And then, then running the team, um, you know, I'd be booking the hotels, I'd be doing the tax returns, <laughs> I'd be paying the salaries, I'd be <laughs> okay. helping to wash the truck. You know, you, know, you, um, you, you, you do all the jobs. And I think it's, it was a great education for me because, um, you get to experience all aspects, you know, of, uh, of running and operating a team. What, what's the, the team like today? I mean, what, what kind of company are we looking at in terms of revenue or employees? Um, just give us a feeling of, of what, what type of economic thing we're looking at there. Well, you see, Red Bull is such a big entity in Formula One. And of course we have, you know, Red Bull Racing. We have Red Bull Powertrains now, the new venture for, for the future Formula One engine. We have Rebel Advanced Technology. We have the, the is encompassing America's Cup and the Valkyrie and, and, and other projects. And then of, uh, we have Rebel Technology, which is the uh, supplier of technology to uh, Alpha Tori as well as our own Grand Prix team. So there's many different divisions of, you know, within the Rebel Formula One group. Uh, but, you know, it employs approximately you know, 1,200 people. Wow. Um, okay. You know, we have revenues that are probably around, you know, half a billion euros, uh, wow. you know, per, per annum. So it's, it's a big business. It's a competitive business. And of course, it's diversified from not just Formula One, but into other projects like, you know, designing the Valkyrie, like the America's Cup project, like, you know, bikes that we're working on with BMC and, and, and so on. So um, it's it's fascinating how the business has really you know evolved from what Red Bull bought from Jaguar at the end of two thousand and four. And the America's Cup, that's sailing then. It's is that the sailing yeah. project. Okay, so okay. that's the the, the uh, Red Bull Alinghi uh, partnership. So we're supplying you know technology and know how to that project. Um, you know, with a specialist um, knowledge that we have, whether it be simulation or um, aerodynamics, for example, for example. Okay, and and what's the main re revenue source? Is that sponsoring in the end? We have a, a significant amount of uh, sponsorship revenue. Um, you know, approaching you know half the figure that I uh, that I just mentioned, and then of course the television revenues uh, are significant. Um, 
you know, through the distribution of the prize fund in Formula One. So, so, um, so, so, and then of course, all the different projects that we, and engineering projects that we have. So we have a, a combination of, of revenue streams. Okay, but sponsoring is the, is the, is the most important one. Sponsorship, I mean, obviously we've announced uh, a, a title partner for this year with, with Oracle, um, but then we have a, a roster of, of over, you know, 20 partners um yeah some of which are, are new for this year but uh it's a a great um you know makeup of of different partners from you know all all, all categories okay okay and um, how did this grow so much i mean some of it seems like the general growth of formula one I mean, the whole industry grew like it became a really truly global yeah. um sport um But I mean, what was the main drivers of of that growth? Uh, in, I think in the, competitiveness in the... is important. Um, being able to offer a a, a real um, return on investment is uh, you know is crucial. The B 2 B work is between some of our partners as well is is a key factor. But then uh, a success success on track drives that that interest. And then of course the the uh, growing popularity of Formula One. Um, because of the competitive racing, because of things like Netflix that have taken Formula One to the people. Um, you know, we've got a whole new fan base coming in. America has suddenly fallen in love with Formula One and, um, and woken up to Formula One. So that drives different revenues, different uh, you know, funding streams into the business. Would you attribute that American, uh, that success in the US to Netflix mostly? I read studies how like there's no, I think, two races already happening in the US yeah. and they're thinking about a third one. Um, there's like so much TV interest in the US now. Is that all because of Netflix in the end? I think fundamentally it's because the show has been good and the racing has been competitive. But you see what a, uh, you know, something like Netflix does is it, it, it gives you a glimpse behind the scenes into the characters and the personalities of the drivers and the teams and the competition. And I think it's really ignited you know, the interest in America. And we've seen that go exponential the last, you know, the last few years. So, um, so yeah, I, I would say Netflix has played a key role in, in bringing in a new fan base and also a much younger fan base, you know, into form. When you first heard about the project, were you skeptical or were you like, immediately were you like, okay, let's do that, that's awesome? Well, the first approach was actually to do it just on Red Bull. Oh, okay. Um, so we were talking. Uh, I was talking to the uh, the production company that produces it, and said that they were they approached us if they could spend a year, you know, with us as a fly on the wall. Uh, and then Formula One said, actually, we don't want to do it with just one team. Uh, we want to do it with all the teams. And so they came back to to me and said, look, you know, this is Formula One's position. Would you be okay with that? I said, well, it's better you do something than than nothing. So we were involved you know, very much from the very beginning. Um, and in the first year, of course, Ferrari didn't get involved. Mercedes wanted to do their own deal with Amazon um, and they stood back and then they saw the value of what it brought and then they came in in series two. Okay. Um, I mean, you said that competitiveness in the product plays a huge role. I mean, even Netflix, I mean, they have the distribution, but they need still need, need something to show that, that that's that's amazing too, that catches people. Um, But I mean, now, like with the exception of this year, I mean, obviously now this year was 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 your year. Um, but the years before, it, it it wasn't that close. It it seemed like 
it's it's an established ranking, almost like the German Bundesliga, where you have one champion and it's the same one every year. Yeah, and you know, serial winning is is boring. It turns people off. You know, sport. We saw it in the Michael Schumacher uh, yeah. era. You know, um, people will claim the Sebastian Vettel, you know, era, even though two of those championships went to the last race against Fernando Alonso. Um, but I think that. Uh, you know what this series has done is has definitely ignited the interest and shown some of the, uh, you know, some of the politics, some of the the personalities, some of the challenges, you know, behind the scenes that isn't just based on the racing. Okay, but I mean, you need those sub stories in order to create tension because the the big story was always. And so, of course, then you get a, a golden year like last year, the most competitive yeah. year in Formula One for the last 40 years, where every weekend you had Max and uh, Lewis, uh, like heavyweight boxers, fighting, yeah. you know, across 22 different rounds. And that then is, you know, box office for for the, the promoters, the broadcasters, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, subsidiaries like uh, Netflix. I mean, how much was the last year different than the years before in terms of attention? Was there like twice the attention? Was it? I mean, can you? Is there any any uh, proxy that you can that you can mention where you're like, okay, it's it's totally changed. Like the last year was was like on a different level. Yeah, last year was way more intense. When we won the world championship with Sebastian, it was it was tough, but it was all about what was going on the track, um, and uh, it was stressful. But it was nothing like the intensity of you know last year. Last year there was so much politics away from the circuit um, and so much tension on the circuit. And it was so close between the two teams, the two drivers. And of course, the Mercedes have dominated everything the previous seven seasons. So um, nobody had challenged them, you know, like, uh, like, like we had. And so uh, the intensity of that battle was, you know, was huge all the way to the final race, which then in itself had its own controversies, uh, you know, surrounding it. But, you know, to come out of the year beating Lewis and becoming world champions for for the fifth time as drive with a driver champion in Max um, was an unbelievable season and feeling for us. But I mean, even though um, sometimes you lose, doesn't it feel like I mean, the end of the product is good. I mean, how much is like the the real passion for winning, and how much is your passion for just producing a good product? I mean, even like the Mercedes guys must know that even though they lost, they were like part of an awesome product. So, so does that does that soothe it in a little bit, or is that is it like are you like racing guys just all about winning? I think uh, you know if you if you're a competitive person, it's all about winning. And uh, you know, Red Bull is in Formula One because it wants to win. It wants to take on. Uh, you know, the giants of the sport and, and beat Ferraris, beat Mercedes, you know, beat the manufacturers. And I think, you know, we've demonstrated that we can do that and, and we've done that consistently. So, uh, you know, it's all about winning and winning drives everything else. Your, 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 your bottom line always looks better when you've uh, got a winning car. I mean, but your sponsors or Mercedes sponsors, they must be happy anyways. I mean, um, they got the attention, they got the, the reach they were, they were hoping for probably nevertheless. Um, my question is, what do you pitch them? I mean, um, like, how do you convince somebody to, to advertise or to work with you? What's, what's, I mean, what's the, what's the, what's the best argument? It's a very compelling story because I think, you know, Formula One, 
uh, you know, even compared to the Olympic Games and the Football World Cup, you know, we, we generate bigger audiences. And I think, and those, of course, uh, happen every four years, whereas Formula One is every two weeks. Um, so, you know, the d- demographic of what we reach, the global reach that we have, the the countries that we perform in, um, the the the. the television figures that we generate, the eyeballs through social and digital media that we that we generate. Um, when you're looking for a return on investment, Formula One um, actually is very very cost effective. So for you know somebody like an Oracle or an Exxon Mobil or a Tag Heuer or you know particularly for a Red Bull in terms of a marketing platform for the reach that Formula One has. It's the biggest sporting entity in the world. What's the best best placement that you can offer? I mean, obviously, like the team name now is is Red Bull, which is like uh, you know in itself a sponsor. Um, but after that, like, what's what's usually with you? But in general, in Formula One, probably the best, like the most important placement that you have. Well, I think title partner. So, for example, bringing Oracle in this year, we become Oracle Red Bull Racing. Um, so they have prominent branding on the side pods, on the drivers, and and so on. And so again, the Uh, the, the eyeballs of coverage that they will generate through the branding that they have in all the territories that we race in and are broadcasting is is you know is is enormous. It's monstrously huge. Can you like give us a, at least an estimate of what's that worth? Like an oracle is that like a what is it a nine figure um, investment for them? Yeah, I mean it's a significant number for them, and it's a long-term, uh, you know, investment as well. And it's great that a, an American company like them have seen the value of Formula One and chosen to invest in it. And of course, it's also the perfect place to showcase their product, their technology, their cloud computing, or, or you know, their fan engagement. That we're making use of all of their software and all of their tools, and that applies to all of our partners. You know, whether it's. Um, You know, Tag Heuer or a, a Poker Stars new for this year, or an Arctic Wolf or a HP or Siemens, or you know, the list is um, is you know is pretty lengthy. But uh, it's great that we've attracted these brands um, to supplement Red Bull. And do you um, do that like in in terms of outbound sales? Do you approach them and tell them, look, what we have here? What don't we, don't you want to talk with us? Or is there like a lengthy inbound waiting list of people that want to talk to you and, and discuss with you? Well, we're very fortunate, um, you know, that we are able to pick and choose the partners that we want to work with. So you're always looking for the right fit. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not just about the sticker on the car. Sometimes it's about the technology that's in the car, you know, as well. So it's about having the right fit of partners for the brand that we are um and uh you know that are like-minded that share the same goals the same vision the same the same attributes and so we're in a fortunate position we can be a little bit choosy um particularly in recent times that you know there's a huge demand for red bull what's the role of the driver i mean understandably the technology plays a huge role and i mean from the outside one understands that you can only win with the right car um so it seems like the car is is even more important but then what what's the what's the role of the driver in in general like in for for winning and for for you know be, becoming a brand well the driver is a crucial ingredient you know he's a key part and uh Uh, you know, all these drivers are phenomenally talented, but the, the cream always rises to the top. And I think in Max Verstappen, we have 
currently the best driver in the world. Um, he is obviously the world champion, but I think as a 24-year-old, you see he's in his ascendancy. Lewis Hamilton, the most successful driver of all time. Um, again, a phenomenal talent. And you saw those two guys raise themselves to a different level last year. They were, you know, uh, ahead of the whole rest of the field, um, taking blows out of each other every every um, you know race from Bahrain to to Abu Dhabi, and it was a phenomenal thing to see. Um, and the variance that a driver can create. I mean, of course, the car is hugely important, and you know they wouldn't neither Lewis nor Max would win in a car that was from P9 or P10 on the grid. But you know the cream always rises to the top, and and those guys set themselves apart from the rest of the field. At what point can you tell that a driver is like a Red Bull driver that that has special talent? I mean, you know, as you just said that, that like a driver in, in P8 or P9 can't win. I mean, how do you identify like that talent? Is it just you see it and you, at the track you stand there and you notice, okay, that guy is different, or what makes you? I mean, how do you how do you scout talent in that way? Well, you, um, we invest a lot in uh, young talent. We have a lot of drivers coming through the junior programs. So Red Bull have always been very active in that side of thing, you know, led by uh, Dr. Helmut Marker. He's always been very keen on nurturing and bringing in new and young and exciting talent. And so you get, you get an idea as they're coming through the lower formula, but it's not until they get to Formula One that, and indeed they get to a front running seat that suddenly the pressure the scrutiny of the media the the pressure of being in that seat the expectation that comes that you see how these drivers deal with that pressure and you know they either sink or swim um and we do our best to to um train them before they get to that that uh that level but a driver like verstappen for example It's at the big pressure, the high pressure moments that you see them really stand up. And it's like in any in any sport, um, whether it be tennis or football or whatever, it's it's only when the pressure is on that you see, you know, how how much mental strength, how their aptitude is under those high pressure moments. What's the relationship within Formula One between like the two top teams? Obviously, all the attention, all the you know excitement is around like Mercedes and and, and you mostly. And then there's like a lot of other teams and a lot of other drivers. Um, is that like 80-20 rule? Um, there's you are you two are eighty percent and the rest is twenty percent. How would you how would you like break that down? And what's what's the role of like a number eight or number nine team in in your hierarchy internally? Well, I think. Um Obviously, it's an intense rivalry and certainly was last year between ourselves and Mercedes. They're based 20 miles from from uh, our factory. Um, there's a huge competitiveness between uh, between the teams. And, um, you know, Toto, Wolf and myself are very different people. We run the teams in very different different ways. But that rivalry, that there's a respect. Um, but it's a hugely intense rivalry. And, of course, we've got You know, Ferrari are a phenomenal team, so much history. We expect them to be fully competitive this year. And, and you know, maybe one of McLaren could throw a surprise as well. So, so uh, different dynamics, but, but like, in any, uh, like in any sport, there can only be one winner. Um, and, uh, you, you know, you've got different teams with different, different qualities. And, uh, Uh, yeah, you know, ultimately there can only be one winner. 
But is it a completely different business for like a number eight team than it is for you? I mean, they probably have like half the resources. They have like basically no chance of, of winning at all. Um, so it's it's a different industry almost that you are in and that like a number five, six, seven team is in. Well, it's the same between a you know a Manchester City and a and a Norwich City in the Premiership. You know, you have a big uh, a big difference, and you know whether it's the same in the Bundesliga as you know as as well. Um, so yes, of course, it is a very different challenge for the teams that are fighting for survival at the bottom of the field. That just by getting through the season is their biggest result, and still being there compared to the teams at the front of the field that are. It's all about performance. It's all about winning. In uh, how far is, is the Mercedes approach and the Total Wolf approach different than yours? I mean, you just mentioned that you both follow a different a different approach. I think Toto is, uh, you know, he, he's a much more corporate guy um, the, the, than I am. Um, he's a bit more remote from the team. We operate still very much as a race team. Uh, you know, I'm here in the factory today. I'm in the fact if I'm not at the racetrack, I'm in the factory. Um, and uh, I think that you know we run as an agile team that has the ability to to um, uh, respond quickly, react quickly, um, and be um, you know very proactive in our decision taking. That we've been very agile in our ability to take decisions and change path or you know path or direction. Um, Mercedes have built a much more corporate machine um, and you know as a result they're much more process probably driven uh, than we are so it's not to say that one is right or one is one is wrong they're just very you know just very different philosophies Okay. How did you um, observe yourself becoming a, a celebrity almost? I mean, you have, I don't know, 1.4 million people on Instagram that follow you. You're like in these shows, you're like now like a global person, thanks to Formula One, thanks to, to Red Bull. How did that develop for you? What did, what, how did that change your life? Uh, I, I mean, obviously working in Formula One within the Formula One world, everybody knows who you are. I think the biggest difference now is because of the global reach of Formula One um, and things like you know, the Netflix show, suddenly your face becomes a lot more familiar. Um, and so that is, it, you, you forget that, you know, you forget that you're just a normal guy, you know, doing, doing your job and then you know, somebody wants to come up and have a, a, a selfie or a, or a picture <laughs> in it. It still surprises still surprises you. Um, I mean, my wife obviously has had to deal with that throughout her. Uh, I know, her I know. Career, so, uh, but it's you know we're just incredibly grateful to the fans, and without the fans, there is no Formula One. So uh, I will always take the time to talk to to the fans, or take a picture, or or, or an autograph, because uh, you know without them, there is. There is no sport. But it feels like, I mean, the top names in Formula One, if you like rank them, it's obviously Lewis Hamilton, then it's Max Verstappen. And then it's almost like Toto and you that are like the, the, the faces of the, of the sport. And even though you're not driving, I mean, that's, that's basically like a new development in general to that sport. Or is that a wrong perception? I think it's just how things evolve. And I think it's the competitiveness between the teams and, uh, and the drivers and uh you know the the higher you rise the sharper the knives become um so so you, you know you've always got to keep your feet on the ground 
Okay, well, but, but I mean, but you're like managing your Instagram account now appropriately, and you're like, you know, you, you do you do personal branding deals yourself? I mean, is it do the brands work with you exclusively? No, no, everything I do is through uh, is through the team. So, uh, you know, we have some great brands that we that, that we work with, but it's you know, obviously, digital media is a great way of keeping in contact with a fan base, and uh, it's. Uh, it's so accessible it's so um so immediate it's uh it's a great way of communication what's the kpi that red bull looks at i mean they invest a lot of money they set it all up um obviously now it seems like they they get you know a lot out of it but i mean they don't look at it that blunt they want to like probably know like more details they what's the what's the steering kpis that uh, that you have to work against in order to make red bull happy um they don't want to just win they want to like get something back for the investment right yes but the the on-track performance drives all the all you know all the returns so the key kpi is where we are on track because that dictates everything else it dictates your television time it dictates uh you know all you know all the financials um so the biggest thing that, that we're engaged on is on our performance because it drives everything else so you don't you don't keep track of like how many eyeballs you've reached like yes, every day we, every week. We, we generate a huge amount of data, and so you can always measure that. And and there's no substitute for winning. W which one do you look at there? I mean, like outside of winning, I mean, obviously that's that's like the, the the sport itself. But like, is there any like metric that you look at that you like follow and like, oh wow, that's 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 bigger than before. Or, like that's dropping off. And, like, what what do you follow? I think uh, fan engagement for us is is huge, and I think we. We're seeing that we now have more followers in Formula One than any other team um, across the different platforms, across the people that we're engaging with, and also the demographics of who we're engaging with is is incredibly important, you know, for us that it has to be inclusive. So, um, uh, you know, obviously we're generating all of these metrics, which is all fascinating, fascinating data. Um, but the biggest thing that drives that is how you perform on track and how you. Um, Uh, you know how you handle yourself. Okay, you mentioned that you've met um, Bernie Ecclestone very early on in your career, and he tried to convince you to, to get into involved in, in in Formula One. How do you perceive the whole development in Formula One itself? Obviously, it doesn't you know it's not a Bernie Ecclestone run business anymore. It belongs to investors now. Um, how, what did change there? But obviously, Bernie, you know, such an incredible character. He built the sport. You know, he created the business. He took it in the 19, early 1970s from uh, almost amateur status into a global business, generating billions of dollars worth of revenue um, and, and as, a, as a truly global championship. Um, but as anything in life, you know, time moves on and it evolves. And I think... Uh, obviously, the business was sold to um, to Liberty Media, and they brought in a whole new approach, uh, opening up, uh, being more inclusive in terms of their digital media strategy, uh, in terms of how they work with partners and sponsors. And I think that you know the world keeps evolving; it keeps changing, and the way that people look at content these days is very, very different to what it was 10 or 15 years ago, or certainly when I was growing up. That you know, there's so much more choice. You know, when I grew up in the UK, there was four channels. Now, now you've got uh, you know millions of channels plus YouTube. And I look at how my children look at content, or they look at sports, or they they interact. It's very different to when I was, you know, to when I was a kid. So, um, and I think Liberty have have embraced that, and I think you know that's that's been a positive thing. 
Can you like pinpoint one or two or three decisions they've taken that that that, that are were different from from the Bernie Ecclestone era? Um, I mean, maybe that the other sports can learn from, like like in terms of rights or what what, what were the most striking differences that they allowed or that they wanted from you or that they, 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 how they how did they change the game? I think the biggest thing was that they embraced digital media. They saw, you know Bernie uh, always questioned digital media because he didn't see it as a revenue generator, whereas I think. Um, Liberty saw it as an advert to then drive eyeballs and, and, and interest in the sport. So it was just a different philosophy. Um, you know, Bernie was very much always of the view he was selling steak, not not hamburgers. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, so for example, the Netflix deal, um, he would have never have entered into because the, the revenue that they pay for those rights um, is is very modest, but then you look at the 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 reach that's created, and then the the secondary revenues that that's created. For example, you know I don't believe we would have bought Oracle in as a title partner without you know that that initiative or all the promoters are full, um, you know sold out audiences and looking for for bigger. Uh, you know, bigger grandstand capacity. So um, it's just a different, different philosophy. It's a different, you know, different way of operating. And and um, does he like agree with that today? I mean, you you seem to talk to him once in a while still. I mean, is yeah, he, is he, is he, yeah, I see, I see Bernie, uh, you know, regularly, and you know, he's still very much uh, in touch uh, with what's going on with the sport. He obviously still has a great relationship with all the promoters. With Stefano Domenicali now as the CEO of, uh, of Formula One, he has a good relationship with. So he's, uh, yeah, he's much more um, prevalent now than than he was, say, four or five years ago. Um, and, and how is your relationship to to Liberty? I mean, I mean, obviously, like you are an important part of their product, um, and and vice versa. Um, how is how is that relationship? And how is the? I mean, how often do you talk to them? What, what's how, how can you imagine that? Uh, it's very good. Um, obviously, I don't need to talk to them so much. Um, I met my main interface is through their CEO, you know, Stefano, who I've known for for twenty years. You know, racing against, and uh, you know, when he was at Ferrari. Um, but you know, Chase Carey, Greg Maffei, all those guys. Um, uh, you know, they they're keen to see Formula One succeed, and um, it's great to see that they still have a a real passion for it. In terms of global expansion, what, what's the next step? I mean, um, obviously there's like the U.S. border seems to. I mean, obviously that seems to be like now a Formula One market after decades. Is there like another market, another expansion level that that you're looking at? Well, we've got to get back into China. Um, so it's it's really important. Uh, I think as a market for us. Uh, I also think. You know, there's other, there's so many race places that want to host a race, whether, for example, South Africa, or, you know, are desperate, uh, you know, to host to host a race, or, or even Argentina, you know, other Latin American countries. Um, so, I think Formula One is in a great position. That it can also be quite choosy about where does it want to host its 23 races in a year because there's so much competition from different markets. What, what do you hear here in terms of teams? I mean, there's rumors there might be new uh, teams stepping in. I mean, even German brands are like at least you know in the rumor. Uh, anything that you hear there? 
there's obviously lots of discussion going on at the moment. And it's great that Formula One is generating that interest and it just shows the relevance of Formula One. So uh, I think the more prestigious brands are involved in Formula One, the better. <laughs> okay, but you don't expect any, any newcomers soon. I think the most obvious entry point is 2026 with a whole new engine. Okay. Um, and so, you know, 2026, we've got a new engine, new chassis, new car, new Concorde agreement. That would be the obvious entry point for any, any new uh, manufacturer. I mean, one of the obvious questions is, um, I mean, with all that success and all the, um, uh, yeah, development that you, that you see, it, it sometimes seems a little contradictory, if you can say that, to, to like what's happening in the world. I mean, everybody is like, it's very climate conscious, it's very like thinking about, um, um, the the carbon footstep and footprint and all this um, is is that I mean surprising to you yourself that like Formula One is is doing so well in 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 these times? Yes, but we're also taking it very seriously. So um, you know when you look at the efficiency of these cars are quite incredible uh, in terms of the range and fuel consumption that they're achieving with the performance and horsepower they're delivering is something that we're very bad at, at promoting. Um, you know, from an efficiency perspective, of course, we're introducing, you know, biofuel uh, content this year, which will go up to 100% sustainable fuels in 2026. Uh, so I think Formula One is a, is a development bed for technology, has demonstrated time and time again with some of the best and most talented engineers in the world, um, that, that it's a driving force uh, of technology. But but you still like if you would agree that if you do a SWOT analysis of the Formula One, like one of the major weaknesses or threats is that it has this. I mean, it's it's hard to argue that it's very very climate uh, conscious. I think it's something that's a key thing on our radar, and that's why the new engine and powertrain has you know been a lot of collaboration with the manufacturers to say, okay, does this fit your criteria? And I think the the overwhelming response has been yes, particularly with the use of. Uh, sustainable fuels with an increase in electrification, hybridization. So I think that uh, yeah, that's a, a key factor that we're you know that we're very conscious of. Do you follow um, the developments around different racing series around like electric vehicles or that? Is that something that could also be a threat to you? Um, from a from a distance, I think you, you can see you know, electric racing isn't really working. It doesn't engage the um, there's no noise. There's no passion. There's no atmosphere really to it and you now see manufacturers withdrawing you know from that from that championship so um i think it's great as a technology you know tester um but again sometimes that technology has to be questioned when you've got diesel generators charging you know charging batteries sometimes it's what's going on behind the garage doesn't represent what it's representing in front of the garage Okay. Okay. Which which sport do you see like closest to? I mean, which, which what, what do you compare yourself to? I mean, you mentioned the Olympic Games, the Soccer World Cup. Any any like other sports that you look at, like the, the NFL, from football in, in the US. Any anything that you try to learn from that you look at that it's maybe even a competitor. I think you can always learn from all sports. I think that uh, I think American sports they put on an incredible show. It's about real fan engagement and uh, and entertainment. You only got to look at the Super Bowl. You know, for you know, for that, and I think you can always learn. I think in in any in any business, it's important to be open minded, um, to look at other sports, and uh, never feel that you're an exclusive club that that knows everything. Okay, but so so, so you say football is probably the best managed sport, like in terms of attention and, and global brand yeah. worldwide. 
I'd say, you know, football is uh, very inclusive, isn't it? I mean, anybody can kick a football. And I think, uh, uh, you know, football, you see such a big following globally for, I think, you know, Formula One after that probably, you know, is, is, is probably the second biggest sport in the world. Okay, okay. I mean, that's the problem with racing, right? I mean, it's so hard to imagine what it's like. So, so few people have this experience. I mean, it's 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 like not it's not like comparable to car driving. It's it's something. It's, it's as a sport, nobody has ever done it. I mean, it feels like there's like billions of people watching it, but nobody has ever done it. Um, yes, but then it's also about you know, these these incredible drivers that are almost like modern day gladiators that strap themselves into these unbelievable machines and then go and race each other at, at ridiculous speed i mean it's uh, it's mind-blowing and particularly when you see these cars in real life the energy that they have the performance that they generate the you can't believe that a human being can control it at that at that speed they're like fighter pilots there was a lot of talk here in germany because there's a football game now coming to germany for the first time an nfl game is going to be played here i mean you have that in london as well um yeah. is it a like a Is this the live event, like attending a live event? Is that important to you, or is it basically a TV sport? And it doesn't matter. You don't, you don't even need to go because the experience on the TV is, is better than that in in the live venue. I mean, is, what's the role of the live venue? I think it's a combination of both because I think people feel the atmosphere from the from the uh, the live event. So it's got to create the right atmosphere, the right buzz, because that then transmit. Of course, it's all about the eyeballs. But if uh, if it's not a If it doesn't look like a venue that you want to be at, or you don't, when you watch the event, think I'd like to be there. Wow, that looks incredible. Uh, that's what it needs to transmit. That's what it's got to convey. Is it like that? I mean, do you think do you, do you hear that? Like people come there and they be like, okay, it's a different thing. That, that's why countries like Singapore or Abu Dhabi, uh, you know, Formula One is uh, such a spotlight for that weekend on that territory and when you see the night race in singapore the amount of people say wow that's i want to go there or um melbourne or any of the other venues that we that, that we go to you know that it is putting a spotlight on their country um for that period in time and of course it's that's why countries and states get behind formula one to invest in formula one as an advert for their own territory I mean, they pay a lot of money to to get a race. I mean, that's 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 how it works, right? I mean, you have to like pay like millions. And there was a huge discussion in Germany because you know we had like two races. Now then, one was taken away, and then it came out like how much money certain cities paid for that. What, what's your what's your favorite uh, race in the calendar? I think it's great races. I mean, there's so many different venues, but some of the old school circuits, you know, the best ones anywhere. There's a big city is uh, is a lot of fun. So as I say, Singapore's a great race. You know, the Japanese circuit is unbelievable. The Belgian circuit's unbelievable. Um, but even other races um, like Montreal, you know, with such a, a vibrant city right next door to the racetrack, you know, Melbourne, there's, there's so many great venues. You didn't mention Monaco. Monaco, I mean, Monaco, how can you forget Monaco? So, uh, <laughs> you know, again, uh, a phenomenal venue and, and experience. Okay, okay. Tell us a little bit about how it is to 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 do your job. I mean, you travel like how many days in a year? Like when the season's on, like how many days are you gone? Yeah, I'm away. I would think about 150 days. Um, so it's a lot of travel. It's a lot of uh, time away from family and and 
and loved ones. So it's it's tough. It's intense, but um, you know it's short intervals. So it's not we're, we're not going away for a month on end, and then you know it's it's in and out. So, so you you travel for like a, for a week around the. I mean, when there's a weekend race, you like arrive in that city like four or five days ahead of the race. No, I'd probably arrive on a Thursday night and leave Sunday night. Okay, immediately after the race, you're out and um, and then you okay. So I have a couple of days at home and then ne off to the next race. Correct. Okay, and how much longer can you do that? Well, I'm still the youngest team principal at Formula One at 48, so <laughs> okay. I've got a few more years left. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I mean, like, who's the oldest one? Who's the oldest? I've got no idea who the oldest one is, but uh, yeah, Martin Whitmarsh has just come back, and he, you know, he's got a few few miles on the clock now. So, but, but I mean, is that, is that your perspective, like doing that for the next 10, 20 years? I think you have to take it. You you, you can never look too far ahead. I, I love what I do. I, I'm happy doing what I'm doing. Um, and yeah, you know, certainly for the next five, six years, I can't see doing anything else. I mean, sometimes it feels like a lot hinges on certain decisions. I mean, like right now, Red Bull is really fully committed. It seems to that sport, to that thing. But I mean, like little tiny things can change within a minute. I mean, if, if like for instance, Ferrari, Mercedes, they decide to drop out, it always feels like like just reading the news, like it's so much, you know, um, vulnerability there. Whereas in other sports, it seems more steady. Is that a fair um, perspective? I think in any sport, you've got vulnerability in any walk of life. Look at what has happened, you know, in the in the world over the last three years um there's always vulnerability and that applies to sport as well i think it applies to any sport i i, I mean like with the whole corona um developments i mean that was a, like a tough time but i think formula one came out quite okay right i mean what, yeah. like I there was only we, one year we adapted we created you know worked together to create a calendar and operate and move people around the globe um safely There's very, very few cases that, that broke out in Formula One. So, uh, and we managed to get a championship going in 2020 and a full championship in 21. And obviously, hopefully we're over the worst of it now. Christian, thank you very much um, for, for coming on and, and, and for giving us an update. How long until the season starts? We've got about three weeks. So uh, we've got one more test in Bahrain and then um, and then we're there for the for the first race. So uh, the clock is ticking. Okay, 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 okay. And and, and you you think, I mean, there's only one goal and that's like to defend the championship, right? Well, we've got number one on the car this year and the, the plan is to try and keep it on there. <laughs> so it's going to be very, very tough. But I think uh, with the team we have, with the drivers we have, we've got a good chance. All right, all right. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Buzz.